I want to start by asking uh, a question, and this is not group participation. You can raise your hand if you want, but uh, if you do raise your hand at any of these questions and it causes problems, I am not doing counseling for you. <laughs> Here's my first question. We're talking about relationships, marriages specifically. Uh, who, if you're married, is living the marriage of their dreams? Whatever... Oh, look at those people raising their hand. All right. See, you all are good. No counseling for you. Uh, whatever that looks like, whatever that means, however you define, this is the marriage of my dreams. Um, okay, here's the next question. Maybe you've kind of given up on the whole idea of the perfect marriage. This is the marriage of my dreams. But you're like, I'm living the marriage of my prayers. Where, where I just saw God and said, it may not ever be exactly what I thought it was going to be, but it's really good because you've done this wonderful work in my heart and in my life and in the heart of my spouse. And God, we're just, we're living the marriage of our prayers. Maybe you're living a marriage like that. How many of you would say, well, I'm not living the marriage of my dreams and I'm not even living the marriage of my prayer. My marriage feels hopeless. It feels like, I don't even know if we're going to make it. It feels like it's just about to crash and burn. Because I know a lot of you and your stories, some of you are in that place right now, where you feel like you've kind of resigned yourself. My marriage is always going to be full of hurt, pain, letdowns, and disappointments. And part of you wonders, is that marriage of someone's prayers really possible? Is a marriage of someone's dreams really possible? Is a good marriage, or even, dare I say, a great marriage even possible? And I want to say beyond a shadow of a doubt, unequivocally, yes, 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 a good marriage, a great marriage is possible. But it won't happen without hard work. And it won't happen without doing things different than how most people do things. Because the statistics bear this out. Most people, how they approach marriage and relationships isn't working. And if we do what everyone else is doing, we're probably going to get the same results. To the tune of this, about 50% of marriages don't make it. They start, don't finish. They end up in divorce. And if that's not bad enough, here's a really sobering, sobering statistic. Of the 50% or so that do make it, that don't, and in divorce that stay together, about 60% of those identify as being unhappy, lacking intimacy, not being uh, life-giving. So basically about 30% of marriages uh, are actually together and feel like it's positive. Those that stay together but aren't happy, they talk about feeling stuck, feeling trapped. They're staying out of, sense, out of a sense of obligation. Maybe it's for the children. Maybe it's uh, just a sense of this is a commitment I made and I have no choice. And so they kind of live by the idea that divorce isn't an option. And I kind of teased you with this last week, right? Divorce isn't an option. And so I just, <coughs> excuse me, I just want to say, and, and, and I'm going to explain this so don't get up and, and walk away. Divorce is always an option. Now, I know some of you say, a pastor can't say that. I mean, you get married, it's forever. Divorce is always an option, and I'll tell you why. Because God always gives us a choice. He always gives us a choice. What did he say to the people of Israel? And then and Joshua echoed it. And Joshua stood in front of all the people of Israel and said, Choose this day whom you're going to serve. But as for me, my house, my marriage, we are going to reflect the things 
of God. God always gives you a choice. Now, to be sure, please let me be clear on this. The Bible makes it abundantly clear. God hates divorce. He hates divorce. And the Bible also tells us the spirit of Christ is the spirit of reconciliation. So God's heart is always for marriages to be restored, to be healed, to be whole, to be a reflection of all that he desires for them. But divorce is a choice. It's always an option. And I just want to say for those of you, because some of you here have uh, experienced the pain of divorce, some of you may face it in the future. I just want you to know divorce, although it's not God's best, is not the unpardonable sin. You can, you can still find a good life, a meaningful life, a rich life, if that's something that's in your past or something you face in your future. Because divorce is always a choice. Now, I know what the idea is. Say, divorce isn't an option. It's, it's not an option. I know what that is meant to reflect. But here's why I think it fails and it falls short. is because when we say divorce isn't an option, we say, well, then we're here. We, we, we should fix our marriage. The problem is there's some people who say divorce isn't an option. She's not going to leave me so I can continue to be the biggest idiot that's ever walked the face of the earth. I don't have to be kind to her. I can be mean. I don't have to honor her. I can be disrespectful. I can make it about my recreation and my fun. I could speak badly. I can mistreat her. I can not care about the kids. She can't leave because divorce isn't an option. She's stuck with me. Isn't she a lucky girl? Or the opposite. He can't leave. I can rack up the credit cards. I can lay around like the Queen of Sheba. I can belittle him and, 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 and demean him and talk bad about him and nag him all the time and tell him how bad of a provider he is and, and he can't leave. Divorce isn't an option. So if you have the choice to leave and you choose to stay, then that means you're choosing something. And it ought to mean you're choosing to stay and work for and fight for and put the effort in to have a good marriage, a great marriage. You're not choosing just to stay and say, well, I'm just going to be miserable till Jesus comes back. I mean, we made it 75 years we were married. We hate each other. Couldn't wait till she died. If that's success to you, I don't think you understand who God is. God wants you to have a life and a marriage that reflects his love for the church, which means that you have a marriage that's life-giving, that's affirming, that's marked by mutual sacrifice of care and concern for the other. That's the kind of marriage God wants for you, not to just stay together because you have no choice. So what I want to do in this series is I want to look at five goals of marriage. And I couldn't think of a better way to express it, but, but I want to just make it clear Okay, the ultimate goal of marriage is to bring glory and honor to God. And that through marriage, God would bring holiness of life and heart to us. So it's not when I, when I say the goals of marriage, I don't mean the end goal. I mean goals that together, if you aim to achieve, will help you to have the type of marriage God wants for you. So these are, these are goals that you, you have to say, this is important to me. And when I say you, I don't mean the singular you. I mean, if we were in the South, all y'all, both of you together have to say, I, I'm, I'm committed to these things. So here they are, the five goals. We're going to look at these throughout this series. The first is place God first, always fight fair, learn to have fun, keep your marriage pure, and stay together. If you endeavor to accomplish, to achieve, if you internalize these five goals and take ownership of them, don't look at them as some arbitrary external goals, but say, these are what I want 
to accomplish in my relationship with my spouse so that I can have that good marriage, that great marriage that God wants for me. It can happen. So we're going to start with the first one because it's foundational. Place God first. Seek God first. And that should kind of, in a lot of ways, be the easiest one. Right? I mean, seek God first. But, it, it, but if we get this one wrong, it makes it so much harder to accomplish the other ones. And sometimes they're less meaningful. They're less significant. So like I said, you may end up staying together, but there's no life in that. So why is it difficult to place God first? Well, part of the problem is this, right? You, you, people growing up, teenagers, young adult, they, they realize at some point, I want to get married. I want to be with someone. And so what do they do? They seek a spouse. They look for that person. So they are seeking a spouse. They're not seeking God. They're not seeking God first. And I'm not saying they're not a Christian. This isn't about they don't love the Lord. It just means they are seeking a person. And then they find a person. Oh, she is drop dead gorgeous. He's so handsome. He makes me laugh. She gets me. He just got such a great personality. We just can't imagine not being together. And so as you get to know this person, you pursue them more. You want to know them better. You seek them. And so you're seeking them. You're not seeking God. And, you, and very rarely do, do in, in that relationship do we seek God together. You may seek God on your own. God, am I supposed to marry this person? But we don't seek God together within the context of that relationship. And then we end up getting married. And it is very difficult at that point to flip the switch, to go from putting them first to God first, for seeking for a spouse to seeking God. Even think, and we're going to come back to this later, think about when you get married, right? Oftentimes we'll, we'll stand in, in a church, we'll stand before God at the altar. Not every marriage is like that, but a lot of them are. And we'll exchange vows and rings. And in that vow exchange, often we say something along the lines of, for better words, rich or poor, uh, sickness and health, till death do us part, so help me, God. And then we turn our backs on the altar and we leave God at the altar and make it on our merry way. And so if you want to have a marriage that's better than the 70% the that don't make it or are miserable, you have to begin to do things different. And so even in our language, right? What do we say when, when we're, we're out there looking for someone and we meet them? We say, I've met the one. I've met the one. And, and I get that. I understand. It comes naturally. It's a natural thing to say because our culture has conditioned us. And earlier this year, I did a series called Trending, and we looked at different uh, things in pop culture that are uh, just uh, capture our, our attention. And they, are, they seem to be true because they're based on a truth, but they're not completely true. And what we learned is any truth that is not completely true is still a lie. But the closer to being true that it is, the bigger of the lie it ends up being. And so here's one we didn't talk about, but is, is poignant in our culture. And it's this. If you want to be fulfilled in life, complete in life, you need to find the one. Now that is a profoundly true statement. 
Here's the problem. Our culture, our society, our world has twisted that. And we identify the one as a person. If you find the one, you'll be happy. You'll be fulfilled. You'll be complete. The problem is the one isn't a person in the sense of someone you can meet at the grocery store or on a dating app or at the gym. The one is a relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ. So this is what it means. God is meant to be the one. God is meant to be the one. God is meant to be the one. And your spouse is meant to be the two. And that's a profound truth for all of life. God is meant to be the one. Your spouse is meant to be the two. But you know what I've never had happen before? Someone come up to me and say, Pastor, guess what? I met the two. So here's what I'm going to do. The first person who says that when they start a dating relationship, I'm going to give you $100. If Pastor Andy will loan me $100. Actually, not loan. Give me $100. If he gives... Because I'm not paying him back. Um, no, the one. God is meant to be the one. We even see this reflected in how God describes marriage in the very beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, and then throughout the Bible. What does it say? And the two shall be one. The two twos shall, become, shall come together, and as they seek the one, they will become one. The two twos aren't seeking the one. They're one, they're seeking the one. And as they seek the one together, they become one in heart, in soul, in mind, in spirit, and in body. So God is always meant to be the one and your spouse is meant to be the two. As a matter of fact, Jesus one time was having a conversation and someone asked him, Lord, Rabbi, teacher, master, I have a question for you. What is the greatest commandment? What is the most important commandment that God has ever given? And here's Jesus' response. Jesus answered, love your wife with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Make sure she is the one. No. Love the Lord your God, not your husband, not your wife, not your spouse. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. In other words, Jesus is saying, make God the one of your life. Because if you don't, everything, everything, everything will get off kilter. So this is incredibly important. And it's so difficult. If you want to approach your relationship different than those that are struggling in their marriage, you need to do things different. And it starts by seeing God as the one and your spouse as the two. So let me start by addressing those of you who are here this morning that aren't married. But maybe you want to be, maybe you're in a relationship, maybe it's heading towards married marriage, maybe you're engaged, maybe it's early in the relationship and you're just thinking about it. Maybe you're completely single, there's no prospects, but you're saying maybe one day marriage will be an option. Here's what I want to encourage you with. Here's your goal. Seek the one while preparing for your two. Seek the one while preparing for your two. Live for God, make him first. Live a life that honors him, that pleases him, that serves him, that, that, that brings glory to him. Live by the Spirit. Be led by his word. Worry less about seeking a spouse and more about seeking God. Another point in one of Jesus' most famous sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, he says this in Matthew 6. He says, seek first the kingdom of God. Seek the one first and and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. 
In other words, when you seek the one, God will do a great work in you. He will prepare you for you too. He will change you. He will add things to you. He will bring um, things into your life that are the uh, characters and qualities that you need to have to be the spouse that you need to be when he brings that right person into your life. Now, here's why this is a struggle sometimes, especially uh, for those of you in the dating world. It's that there are a lot of people, and you may be one of them, but I don't know if it's you, um, but there's a lot of people who say that they're a Christian, that claim that they love the Lord. But when you look at their life, God isn't the one in their life. Their life is the one in their life. In other words, it'll be something like this. They'll say, or they'll think, or they'll behave in such a way. They may not say these words, but, but they behave like this. Like, yeah, God's important, but I'm not going to seek him first. Maybe one day when I'm married, when I have kids, going to church will be important and God will be a priority. But right now, I'm going to seek my life rather than seek God. So I'm going to go to the clubs. I'm going to go have some fun. I'm going to hook up with some people. And then later down the road, when it matters, I'll make God the one in my life. Now, here's the thing. That's a very, very, very dangerous way of thinking because it's very difficult to ever go back. We end up going down a slippery slope. The other thing is it's a very common way of thinking. So here's what you need to do. If you are going to say, I'm going to seek the one while I pre prepare for my two, you need to re remind yourself of this, that you need to be the type of person, the type of person you're looking for is looking for. That's a tongue twister. So let's say it again. Be the type of person, the type of person you're looking for is looking for. Be the type of person that you want to marry. In other words, is the guy that you want going to be interested in a girl like you? Is the girl that you want going to be interested in a guy like you? See, it's easy to say, I know what I want. But it really, it doesn't matter as much what you want as who you are. Because you will attract someone like you. If you're living an ungodly life, you will attract ungodly people. If you're living a godly life, you'll attract godly people. I'm not saying you'll be attracted to. I know a lot of godly women and a lot of godly men that are attracted to ungodliness. But that says something that you're not seeking the one first. You're seeking what is going to make you feel good. So you need to seek the one and say, God, change that in me because I don't want to be in a relationship that isn't bringing glory and honor to you. See, most of us say, when I get married, I want a godly marriage. Well, here's what that means. If you hope to have a godly marriage one day, you need to live a godly life today. You're planting seeds for what the future is going to hold for you. So think about it like this. If you want to be with someone who's had 12 or 24 or countless sexual partners, well, then do that. I don't recommend it, but go ahead. But if you want something different, then you have to live different than what you see around you. Seek the one while you prepare for the two. And wait, I say wait on the Lord. Now, to those of you who are married, some of you have been married a long time, you have a great marriage. 
Okay, what I want to do is give you some things that will help you to strengthen your marriage so it lasts. Some of you have been married a long time and your marriage is just dangling by a thread. I want to give you some things that if you apply will give you traction and change the trajectory of your marriage. If you, and again, you means both of you, grab hold of this and apply it. If your marriage is just kind of there and it's blasé, it will bring life and breathe life into your marriage if you let it. So here it is. Seek the one with your two. Seek the one with your two. Now, this is not always easy because what happens is we twist things up. We, we don't see God as the one. We see our spouse as the one. So we say things like this. They're the ones that will make me happy. They'll bring joy. They'll fulfill me. He'll complete me. She'll be the source of my delight. They'll provide for me. They'll protect me. And it's all about them. And we put them as the one in our life. And they can never meet our expectations. So here's the thing. If you want to have the marriage that God wants for you, one that's life-giving, affirming, that builds you up, that you sacrifice for each other. You'll never have that, because that's the kind of marriage God wants for you. But you'll never have that unless God is the first one in your life. So remember this, your marriage will never be all that God desires unless he is the one. Anything else, anything else, anything else will not get you what you want. It may for a little while, but there's 70% of the world that says it didn't work. So if you're just going to play the odds, don't do it the way they're doing it. Now what happens is we get it all twisted up. We make our spouse number one. Or it's not our spouse. We make our children. We make our career. We make our finances. We make our recreation. We make all kind of things number one. And then maybe our spouse is number two. Or maybe God's number two. Or maybe our spouse is number one and our kids are number two and our career is number three and our recreation is number four. And God's somewhere down on the list. Or maybe it's our finances and our career that are first and then our kids and then our recreation and then our spouse because, well, we got to, we're kind of stuck with them because, you know, divorce isn't an option. And then there's God. Now, anyone who goes to church that says they're a Christian would never admit to that. They'd never say that because they know the right thing to say. Oh, God's first in my life. But you got to look a little deeper. Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? Where do you serve? What's most important to you? How do you speak to your spouse? What do you do with your life? What informs your morals? What informs your behaviors? What informs your worldview? And so much of that is reflective of what is the number one thing in your life. Why do I say that? Because what is number one in our lives? Whatever the one is in our lives, if it's not God, we end up, well, even if it is God, whatever the one is in our life, we end up worshiping. If it's not God, it becomes an idol. We end up idolizing it. The problem is when we idolize something, we put on them expectations and, and desires that no one or no thing could possibly ever meet. And so what happens is anything that's first becomes an idol and anything you idolize, you'll eventually demonize. Whatever you idolize, you will eventually demonize. So... What does that mean? So, so let, me, let me walk this out in a practical way. You meet her. Oh, 
and you make her the one. And you idolize her. She is so organized. She's got such drive and determination. She's so self-confident. She knows what she wants. I love that. She's just, she's just a, a secure woman. But you idolize her. You make her the one instead of God the one. And then you end up married. And all of a sudden, the very thing you idolize, you demonize. She's controlling. She always wants it her way. It's never good enough. Nag, 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 nag. From idolize to demonize. So you meet him and you go, he's so laid back. He's so chill. He never gets upset about anything. I love that it's like, it's not all up about success and accomplishment. Like he just wants to live in the moment. And then you get married. And he's the one. And so you idolize him. And then you demonize him. He is so stinking lazy. He won't do anything. He won't lead. He won't make decisions. He's got no drive. He's got no motivation. It's all about just having fun in the moment. Like all he wants to do is sit and play video games. What's the matter with him? Because you go from idolizing to demonizing because you made him the one instead of God the one. Listen, take it outside of the context of marriage. I see this all the time with people in their careers. They make their career, their position, their title, the idol of their life. See it in churches and in businesses. They start a new job. They get a new church. Oh, this is the greatest church, greatest organization, greatest business. I love the people. It's amazing. I couldn't imagine being anywhere else. And then six months or six years later, this is the worst people, the worst church. This place stinks. They don't know anything. They're horrible. It goes from idolize to demonize because God is not the one. So we need to seek the one together. So I want to give you some practical ways to do that. Now, I, I, could, I could do a message series on each of these, or a sermon on each of these, do a whole series. I'm not going to do that, but I just want to touch on eight ways that you can practically seek the one together in your marriage. Here they are. Praying, praying together regularly and consistently as you seek to hear the voice of God together. Read the Bible together as you seek to understand the, 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 the wisdom of God through the passages of the Bible, serving together. Not her serving here, you serving there. Serve together, side by side. There's something spiritual. When you serve, it's a reflection of Jesus. Jesus said the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. When you serve, you're looking like Jesus. When you serve together, you're humbling yourselves before God and say, let's serve here. And I love seeing husbands and wives serve in our children's department together. I believe that delights the heart of God. Giving together, learning to be generous together. Well, he pays the bills, so he knows how much we give to the church. Uh, she goes online and makes together. Say, so how do we be generous? How do we be more generous? How do we support the vision and the mission of the church? How do we give to people out of the, the abundance and the blessing that God has given us? Because Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. So as you seek him to say, where should we give? How should we give? How do we give over and above? It, it brings you together. Parenting, parenting together. Listen to me. Parenting is a spiritual thing. It's not just practically providing for needs, making sure they got clothes and they're fed, and then you get to 18 and get them out of high school and say, good luck. It's spiritual. You are pouring into them. Train up a child in the way they should go. Bringing discipline, teaching them, as the, the Bible says, as they're coming and they're going and they're rising and they're sleeping, and just imprinting upon them the laws and the commands of God. It's a spiritual thing. 
And when you parent together, listen to the dads, and I'm going to kick the dads a little bit here. Listen, don't ever say to me, i got to babysit the kids today. Shame, shame. That you, they're not babies that you got to babysit. They're your children who you have an opportunity to spend time with. Your wife can go and do what she wants to do, but you can pour, you can model, you can shape, you can invest in that relationship. You're not babysitting them. You're their father. But together, dads, don't leave the spiritual formation of your children to your wife or to the, the, the children's ministry or to the youth ministry. They do a fantastic job, but they can only support what you're pouring in to them. Parent together. Worship together. Come to church and sit together, hold hands, worship God together at home, listen to praise music in the car, spend time worshiping God together because worship is eternal. There's a lot of things that aren't going to happen in heaven. One of them is preaching, amen? But worship will endure. We worship God in heaven. So learn to worship together, to celebrate God's goodness, his faithfulness, to cry out to him through worship. Connecting together. Go to a connect group together. Listen, it's important that, that wives have a group of ladies that they can get together with and encourage each other, and guys have a group of men they can get together with and, and have fun. But find that group of people through a connect group or friendships where you can get together, not just to hang out and have a good time and share a meal, uh, but to get together, to share your hearts, to talk about what you're struggling with, to build each other up, to, to, to bear one another's burden, to encourage each other, to spur one another on, to pursue the things of God. Connect with other couples together and create together. Yeah, some of you are like, oh, I like that one. I don't mean procreation. I mean create deep, meaningful, spiritual traditions together. Think about the Jewish people right? throughout the Bible. They have all these feasts and festivals, and they all had spiritual uh, meaning behind them. And we, by and large, lost that in our culture. Begin to develop those spiritual traditions together. On someone's birthday, don't just get together and have fun and eat cake and, and have a party. Take time and say, we're going to pray a blessing over them. We're going to speak words of life and encouragement and the things that we've seen in their life and just, and just praise them a little bit. On Thanksgiving, you know, oh, everyone just wants to eat. It's goofy when dad makes us do this. Make him do it anyway. Hey, what are you thankful? What, what has God done that you're thankful for this year? At Christmas, don't just open presents. Take time and, 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 and talk about the, the gift of Jesus. Read the stories at Easter and all those holidays. It doesn't matter what it is. Take time. Father's Day, Mother's Day. Don't just, oh, we're going to celebrate mom. Talk about the blessing that she is, the inheritance that you've received from, from the legacy that has gone before you. Make it a spiritual tradition. Take those times to go deep in God's word. Like we have a resource that's available. It's free from the church. You can go to hickoryridge.online slash resources. And it's right now media. It's free and it, it is like Netflix. It's got hundreds and thousands of videos that you can watch together as a family, as a couple to just go deeper in your walk with the Lord. But do those things together. Text each other throughout the day. I'm praying for you. Get the Bible app, you version. Get the Bible app. You can, you can do devotions and Bible reading plans together and text each other the, the verse of the day. Find ways to seek God together. Write down those things that you're asking him for, for wisdom, for your children, for a friend, for your finances. But together, seek God because I'm telling you, if you begin to do these things, some of you are doing some of them, maybe some of you are doing all of them. But if you begin to do one, two, three, six, eight of these things, I'm telling you, it will change your marriage because you are together coming to the one who hears 
and does something great. Because here's what it says in 2 Chronicles. It says, if my people who bear my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, if they'll seek me, if they'll make me the one, and if they'll turn from their wicked ways, their evil ways, if they'll turn from living for themselves and make me the priority, I will hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin and I will heal their land. I will heal not just their land. I'll heal what's happening in their land. I'll heal their marriages and I will heal their families. But we have to at some point say, I'm going to seek the one with my two. Together, we're going to seek the face of God. See, what happens when we begin to seek God is this. Intimacy grows and healing happens when you seek God together. Intimacy grows and healing happens when you seek God together. Because all of a sudden, they do something that frustrates you, and they will because they're human. Instead of it blowing up to World War III, it's easier to forgive them because you're seeking God with them. It's easier to say, I can see past some of the things they do and not just hate them and be frustrated with them because you're seeking God with them. It's harder to leave your marriage and to give up on it when you're seeking God together. And it is hard, very hard for your marriage not to be changed when you seek God together because you are seeking the God who can do the impossible. Now, I know some of you are thinking, but you're asking me to, to pray and I'm not comfortable doing that. Get over it and seek him. I don't even know where to begin reading the Bible. It's just start in the Gospel of John, read a couple of verses, but seek him. Well, I don't even really like him. I don't really like her. We don't even really like each other right now. Seek him together. Because when you do, something happens. Intimacy grows and healing begins. So here's what you need to do. You need to grab the hand of your two and never, 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 never stop seeking the one together because something powerful happens. I remember hearing a story about a couple who were married for uh, over 70 years. And uh, the wife was 88, the husband was 90. And, and she was dying. She was in the hospital. She was uh, on her last moments. The, the doctors, the healthcare officials said she's just, this, this is it. She's probably going to be passing, uh, passing away here in the next few hours. And so uh, they called the pastor and the pastor shows up and he says, I walked into the hospital room and, and I felt like I was walking into this, this holy space. Because I walked in and here she is, surrounded by family generations, all there to honor her life and her legacy as this matriarch of the family. He said, I walked in and they're, they're all there and they're just singing a song of praise and worship to God. He said, I just stood there quietly and, and I watched. And he said, when they finished singing, he said, that 90-year-old man lifted up his Bible and he turns to the 23rd Psalm. And there, reading it over his wife and to his family. He reads those so familiar words. And he gets to the part, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, 
tears begin to drip down his face. Finishes reading and he closes up the Bible. He lays it down. And he reaches down and gently grabs hold of his wife's hand and then one by one they all grab hands around the room and he leads them in a prayer. And it was a simple little prayer. And he said, Father God, I thank you so much for the privilege of being married to my wife these 70 years. To be able to serve you alongside her for our lifetime. It is the greatest gift and blessing I've ever had. He ends the prayer. He leans down and kisses his wife for the last time. Just a few moments later, she passes from this world into the eternal. Later on, the pastor had a chance to talk with the man and he said, sir, I just, I just have to ask you a question. I want what you had. That was incredible. What, what did you do? How did you find 70 years of a life-giving, Christ-honoring marriage? He said, Pastor, I, I can't tell you. You've, 70 years, you make a lot of mistakes. And I've got far too many to count. It's hard to tell you what we did right, but I could tell you, I believe the most important thing we did. And here's what he said, and I quote, we were always faithful to seek God together. We were always faithful to seek God together. So grab the hand of your two and never, never, never stop seeking the one. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now. And God, I don't know where we all are in this journey of life, in our understanding of you, of who you are, where we are in our marriage, where we are in our relationship. God, I know if we pulled the room, there are those that are on polar opposites. But God, I know this. The most foundational, profound truth is this, that we'll never be fulfilled in life until we make you the one. So if we're married or not, if we're young, if we're old, God, if we know we've not been seeking you as the one like we should have, God, would we make that commitment here today? That we've pushed you not to just number two, but maybe three, four, or somewhere else down the line. God, would we make you the one in our life from this day forward? Now, as you continue to pray, those of you that are single, I'd say, I need to, I need to worry more about seeking the one than seeking a spouse. God, I just pray for them right now with their hearts, their spirit, and their mind. Be focused more on you, about loving you, serving you, living for you, and being led by your spirit. And now to those of you that are married, maybe you're in a good place, maybe you're in a struggling place. I want to pray that those that are in a good place will be strengthened so that you can endure and those that are struggling, that you'll find a way to come together to seek the one. Remember I said, sometimes in our wedding vows, we say, so help us God. And at some point we have to say, God help us. God help us, we need you. 
We didn't leave you at the altar when we walked away. We're coming back. We want to seek you first, and we need your help. Heavenly Father, I pray for marriages that are in a good place. Strengthen them by your Holy Spirit. Help them to begin to put these things into practice, practical ways to seek you together so that those that started well and are doing well will also finish well. God, I also pray for marriages that are struggling and we cry out, help us, God, help us, God, help us, God. And we turn to you as the one. God, I pray that we would learn, that they would learn to seek you together, that they would start with just one of those things. If all eight are overwhelming, start with one, but they would seek you together and that they would be reminded that with you, all things are possible. And now, God, we pray for the rest of this series. God, for those that are going to hear it in person, online, in the days, weeks, months to come. God, would your spirit move through these words and radically change and transform hearts and lives today and over the next number of weeks. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. We're going to stand and sing some songs and continue to worship God. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you're here with your spouse, you can stand to your feet. If you're here with your spouse, you may have never done this before, but we're going to sing a song. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. As we sing this song, just reach over and grab your spouse's hand. Worship God together. After about 30 seconds, you're going to, if you've never done it before, you may want to let go. Stay connected. Worship God through just one song. It's like three minutes. And just allow God to bring your hearts together. After that, I'm going to invite the prayer teams. After this first song, the prayer teams are going to come up here. And if you'd like prayer about something we talked about, your marriage is struggling, you feel a conviction that you haven't been seeking God as the one, or you need prayer about something else in your life, in your business, in your finances, physical healing, whatever it is, just come and let these prayer teams pray with you and for you. But right now, if you're here with your spouse, grab their hand. This is group participation time now. I don't want to do counseling. Grab their hand and worship God together.